So I was searching around on the internet this week and I came across this great story that illustrates uh, the idea of stories for us very well. It's from wired.com and uh, it's by a guy named Frank Rose and I want to read a couple of paragraphs of it for you to start. I found this to be fascinating. Check it out. What is it about stories anyway, he writes. Anthropologists tell us that storytelling is central to human existence, that it's common to every known culture, that it involves a symbiotic exchange between teller and listener, an exchange we learn to negotiate even in infancy. Just as the brain detects patterns in the visual forms of nature, a face, a figure, a flower, and in sound, so too it detects patterns in information. Stories are recognizable patterns, and in those patterns we find meaning. We use stories to make sense of our world and to share that understanding with others. They are the signal within the noise. So powerful is our impulse to detect story patterns that we see them even when they're not there. In a landmark 1944 study, 34 humans were shown a short film and asked what was happening in it. The film showed two triangles and a circle moving across a two-dimensional surface. And the only other object on screen was a stationary rectangle partially open on one side. Only one of the test subjects saw this scene for what it was, geometric shapes simply moving across a plane. Everyone else came up with elaborate narratives to explain what the movements were about. I find this fascinating. Typically, the participants viewed the triangles, get this, as two men fighting, of course, and the circle as a woman trying to escape the bigger bullying triangle. Instead of registering inanimate shapes, they imagined humans with vivid inner lives. The circle was, quote, worried. The circle and the little triangle were innocent young things, and the big triangle was blinded by rage and frustration. Isn't that fascinating? To me, it tells very vividly of our insatiable desire both to take in and to create of ourselves stories. We are a storytelling people. Now, you can understand the Christian story the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments in many ways. But in a sense, the main point I want to make throughout this entire sermon series is that the Bible is primarily a story. It's primarily a story with two main characters, God and us, man. And um, even the parts of the Bible that aren't narrative, the majority of the Bible is narrative, it's story, but even the parts that aren't, like the poetry and the letters in the New Testament, all serve to supplement the larger narrative, the greater story as it progressive progresses forward. And what I want to do in this series over the next few months is look at the story as look at, at the narrative highlights, at the major plot lines of what God has been doing, what he has been up to in this world that he has made ever since the dawn of creation. That's the story that the Bible tells. And so that's where we're going to be headed in the coming weeks and months. And my prayer and my hope in this series is that you will find the Bible to be a compelling and a true story. 
So if you're not very familiar with the Christian scriptures, then hopefully this series can serve as a bit of an introduction to them for you. If you've been around the Bible your whole life, but you've always maybe just thought of it as a bunch of rules that I'm supposed to keep, then I hope that this series will open new ways of looking at the scriptures for you. But fundamentally, I want you to see that the Bible, the story of God, which he himself writes, is interweaving even now into your own personal stories. That's really the interesting thing about Christianity. It says that what God is doing in the world is very, very important for what is happening in your life. That God's big story is all the time and in miraculous ways interacting with whatever you have going on right now in the story of your life. And the answer to all of those things is found ultimately in Jesus. And so tonight we want to begin looking at the story, the story of God, by looking at the beginning by looking at the God who made everything. The God who made everything. And as we look at this very famous chapter, which even if you're not a Christian or a follower of Jesus, you've probably heard or read before, there's four things I want to show you about it. We could spend a whole series in this chapter, but for tonight, four things. First, God is. Second, God creates. Third, God endows. Fourth, God rests. God is, God creates, God endows, God rests. If you're taking notes, there's your outline. Let's go. First, God is, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. What a great opening. In the beginning of what? <laughs> well, in the beginning of everything, apparently, but not in the beginning of God. In the beginning, or perhaps before the beginning, there is, there is nothing but God. And that's the first thing the Bible tells you about him. The main character of the story is introduced in the very first verse of the story. The main character is God. And God precedes and initiates the story himself. Think about it this way. The first thing we learn about God in the Bible is that God exists independently of everything else. And that is true, Christianity says, only of him. God is self-existent and self-sufficient. God, it is in the nature of God to live. Isn't that a profound and yet at the same time simple statement? What a, what a dramatic opening, by the way. It's definitely one of the most famous opening lines in the history of the written word. And I love how the Bible doesn't begin with just a series of deductive proofs for God's existence. It doesn't begin by trying to compare God by analogy to something else. It just merely presupposes him. It says, in the beginning, there was God. God is there. He has always existed. He exists now, and he always will exist. He starts the story off, but he was there before the story ever began. Now, why is that important or relevant for you? Well, there's a lot I could say there. Let me try and approach it from this angle. You know, for all of us, there's really two assumptions, two possible assumptions that we can make as we try to answer these big questions in life. Why am I here? Where did the world come from? What is the purpose of life? As we're examining and thinking through, either privately or in community, as we're thinking through those questions, there's two assumptions that are opposed to each other that we always start with. The first assumption is, is this. I am able, in and of myself, to figure out the answers to these questions. 
I can sort of survey the evidence and decide by my own intellect and intuition and reasoning powers what the answers are to these big life questions. That's one assumption. And that's the assumption that dominates our culture today. Um, if you've ever had a philosophy class in high school or in college, then you have undoubtedly heard of Descartes and his famous maxim, I think, therefore, what? Thank you. I think, therefore, I am. That maxim is very, very influential on the history of Western thought. And what Descartes really is getting at there is this first assumption. You see, what he's saying is that there's nothing I know except that I'm here thinking that there's nothing I know. And because I know I'm at least thinking... Therefore, I must exist. And so I'm going to move forward from this first assumption that I exist and try to figure everything else out. That's one of the approaches that we take when we think about these big life questions. The Bible, however, takes a second approach. Rather than presupposing and assuming that we, by our own powers of reasoning, are able to sort of figure out and answer these questions on our own, the Bible assumes not that I think, therefore I am, but that God simply is. And therefore, everything else is as well. So at the very beginning, you see the Bible turns the natural way we think on its head. The Bible doesn't say that it's fundamental to your life and to the life of this universe is your ability and your centrality. The Bible says that fundamental to the life of this universe and to your life is God and his existence, and his centrality. You are not independent. You are dependent. God alone is independent. Now, you might not agree with that. You might have questions about that. And if you do, I'd love to talk with you more about it. But if you want to understand the story of the Bible, if you want to get what Christianity is all about, then you have to get that, that God is, and that is the operative presupposition of the rest of the story. Second, God creates. In the beginning, God, first verb of the Bible, created the heavens and the earth. Now, that word, the heavens, is a reference, I believe, to the invisible creation. And the word earth is a reference to visible creation. He creates like the actual heavens, the sky, later in verse 8 or so. But here we see that God creates everything that is not God. All that is non-God is made and depends on God, right? Now, there's a lot that we can say about that, but I, I just want to pause for a moment and hope you see, even if you don't buy Christianity or the Bible, that that's at least a dramatic entrance. I mean, it's pretty profound to think that there is a supreme, eternal, all-powerful being who just by the word of his power spoke, boom, everything into existence that is not him. All that you don't see that is created and all that you do see that is created according to the Christian story flows from the creative power of an infinite and wise God. In Genesis 1-2, the second verse of the Bible, we see that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is hovering over the face of the waters and the rest of the chapter, really, in a beautiful, highly stylized, poetic, historical narrative, recounts for us how God made the world. And there's all sorts of approaches, there's all sorts of things we could say about Genesis 1, but tonight I'm going to just say three quick things about this idea that God creates. Okay, Three things about God creating. First... And very importantly, I want you to get that the main purpose of Genesis 1 is to tell us about the meaning 
of creation, not necessarily the method of creation. What I mean by that is that oftentimes, especially if you've been around the church for a while, um, Christians get lost in very, very important, don't get me wrong, these are very, very important discussions about issues like how does Genesis 1 fit in with modern science? Or how old is the earth based on what we read in Genesis 1? Or are these days like literal 24-hour solar days or are they something figurative? Those are all really important questions, and I'm not going to get into them tonight. I'm happy to talk about those things with you. This is actually a, a subject that I'm fascinated by and I'm really interested in. If you want to know my thoughts on some of those questions, please come talk to me. But I want you to hear right now that the main point of Genesis 1 is not to satisfy the curiosities of a 21st century creation scientist. The main point of Genesis 1 is not to tell you how God created the main point is to show you that God created. You know, Moses, who wrote this book, when he wrote it some 4,000 years ago, wrote it in a culture where all of the major religions of his day primarily believed that the world came to be because the gods got into a big fight. The Enuma Elish, if you've read that in a school class or something, is a very famous example of this. Tiamat and Marduk and other gods, they start fighting it out. And one god, you know, whacks another god's head off with his heavenly axe. And the results are somehow the world is created and humanity is sort of spawned from the ooze of the blood of the dead god. Genesis 1 is written to, to fight against that sort of telling of how the world came to be. Notice Genesis 1 does not present God as a victorious warrior. Genesis 1 rather presents God as a creative artist. There is no, here's the point, God has no rivals. There is no opposition to his kingly, royal, noble reign. There is no one else who can even begin to approach his power and his dignity. God alone, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is the king and the ruler of this universe, and he alone is unassailable. That's the point. God didn't create as the result of some struggle with another God of similar power. He created, rather, out of the overflow of his own power and beauty and glorious essence. That's the story of the Bible. And the first thing to get about God making everything is to get that God making everything shows you that he is God <laughs> and no one else is. Second thing, though, second point regarding God creating. The first point is it's mainly about the, uh, the meaning and not the method. Second point. Genesis 1 does rule out what I will call here philosophical materialism or naturalism. By philosophical materialism, I don't mean like people that like bling, you know, that want more jewelry. I don't mean that kind of materialism. I mean by that the idea, the mindset that all that exists is matter or energy in space and time. This is a very, very prevalent view, as I'm sure many of you know. It's generally spawned from the biological evolutionary scientists who take their science and then try to make their scientific arguments an entire overarching worldview. 
This view says that the universe is not created, that it is random, and that it has no purpose. The Bible clearly, and I believe compellingly, contradicts this viewpoint, and you have to understand that if you're going to understand the story of God. The Bible claims, contrary to philosophical materialism, that this world is made, that it is purposeful, and that it is designed. It's not random, and it is not all that there is. It is dependent upon a maker, God. Can you just be honest with me and let me be honest with you for a moment? Even if you don't buy Christianity, frankly, I find this to be a much more persuasive way of answering the question of where we came from. Just think about it this way. There's one of two possibilities. Either either there was someone in the nothing that made the nothing something, right? You got that? Either there's someone in the nothing that made the nothing something or something came from nothing. And I believe that it's much more coherent intellectually and much more compelling on my emotions as well that, that God pre-existed this universe and designed through his artistry, through his power, all that we see. At the end of the day, no matter the scientific arguments, I simply can't get past the logical quandary that you find yourself in when you ultimately end up saying that nothing produces something. That non-life somehow spawns life. I just don't get it. I don't buy it. If you think that the universe, on the other hand, is eternal, that the universe has always existed, that matter is eternal, then I would say at that point that, well, that's at least as much of a leap of faith as saying that God is eternal. You know, you weren't there. You don't know. And it's certainly not something you have evidence for. It's just as rational, it's just as reasonable to say that there is an eternal, independent being who is not created as it is to say that creation itself is eternal. And so I'm just not persuaded by the evidence or by the arguments of philosophical materialism. And the Bible very, very clearly contradicts them. You know, if it all started with the Big Bang, I'm happy to grant you that argument, but I still have the question, where do the two things that bang together come from? You know, you can always move one step back, and ultimately you finally get to the question, how did something come from nothing? The Christian message is that God did it, and I believe that's the best one. The Bible presupposes that, the rest of the story. If you're going to get the story, you've got to get that. So God creates. He creates, and that rules out philosophical naturalism or materialism. Last thing you need to get about God creating, okay? Stay with me. Last thing. God created everything good. You notice that? Repeated again and again and again. God, at the end of each day, looks upon what he has made, and he declares it to be good. Listen, this world is not, it is not inherently flawed. You are not inherently flawed. This world is flawed, and you are flawed, but it's not because you were made that way. It's because you have been broken by sin. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks in more detail. But God didn't make anything badly. Everything he made is good. Very, very important for you to understand that. So God is. He pre-exists everything. That's the beginning of the story, right? God creates 
by the word of his power in the space of six days out of nothing. Third, God endows. Look at verse 26. Um, If you study this text in detail, you'll find that sort of the pinnacle, the climax of the entire chapter is right here in Genesis 1.26, where God makes man. Man is the crowning achievement of God's creation. This is everything the chapter has been building to is right here. Verse 26, God said, let us, which I do think is a reference to the Trinity, by the way, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And then in verse 27, God executes his decree. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. So God creates man as the crowning achievement of his beautiful artistry that we call the universe. And then he endows man with his image, with his likeness. So here's the question. What in the world does that mean? As you might imagine, a lot of ink has been spilt over the idea of the image of God. Does it mean that we are self-aware and self-conscious? Does it mean that we have the capacity for human language? Does it mean that we are sub-creators, so to speak, mimicking the create, creation of God? Does it mean that, that you know, we are conscious? It probably means all of those things. But I think that if you just give Genesis 1 a surface reading, if an ancient Israelite in the second millennium B.C. were to read Genesis 1, the first thing they would probably think when they read verse 26 and 27 is simply this. When it says that we are created in the image of God, it just means that we are like God. More than anything else, in all of the universe, humanity, men and women, resemble the maker of the stars, of the galaxies, of this world. We don't look like God in every way. There are incommunicable attributes of God. We are not like God in that we are omnipotent or all-knowing. But there are communicable attributes of God as well. We are like God in the sense that in the sense that God creates and we create, that God works and we work, that God loves and we love, that God is holy and we are called to be holy. You know, as a father, if you're a father here or a mother, you can probably understand this better. Um, I've got a five-year-old boy and a two-year-old boy. I've also got a girl, but I especially see this with my boys. You know, they do stuff more and more, especially Nate, my five-year-old, Usually this has a negative connotation, by the way, in our house. Nate will do something that probably isn't ideal. And uh, I'll say, my gosh, that's just like me. I did that when I was five. I did that when I was 15, 25, you know. He is so much like me. It's amazing. You look at him. You know, I, I look at the way he sits on the couch. I look at the way he picks his fingernails. I look at the way he does his homework. And then I look at my dad. And then I really get creeped out, right? I love my dad, but, you know, you know what it's like. Sometimes I'll do something, and Mary Ann will just be staring at me. I'm like, what? She's like, you are your dad. I'm like, do not ever say that to me again, woman. <laughs> but it's so true. I just inevitably resemble him. Scary though that might be. I love him. Great though that might be. He's a great man. And my children, inevitably, scary though that definitely is, resemble me. We are like our parents, and our kids are going to be like us. If you're about to become a parent, get ready. Your kids are going to be like you, and it ain't all good. Listen, it ain't all good. Hopefully some of it's good. There's going to be some issues in your family, 
and it's because of you, not your kids. Um, that's a different sermon series. <laughs> the point is, when you look at your family and you see just the inevitable similarities between them, you see what it's like to be made in God's image. We are, more than anything else in the universe, like God. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why am I alive? Why are you alive? Again, and I would love to talk to you about that. There's a lot of good answers. I think one answer that we see here is that you are alive to image the maker. You are alive to in very fundamental ways, reflect God's perfect character. You are alive to, to show the universe what God is like through the way you live. Another important thing about being made in God's image is this, and don't miss it, because every single one of you, because every single human who at this moment is alive, and every single human who has ever lived and ever will live bears God's image, every single human has an inherent dignity, value, and worth. That is why, by the way, evils such as racism and classism and other things are so horrible in God's eyes is because it inherently demeans certain people based on arbitrary distinctions. Listen, every single human, because they bear God's image, has value. Every single human, it doesn't matter what the color of their skin is, it doesn't matter what country they were born in, it doesn't matter what religion they are. Every single human bears God's image. And because of that, every single human is inherently valuable to God. Don't let anyone tell you that Christianity is not about loving man. Christianity, above all other faiths, speaks of the goodness, of the worth of humanity. Yes, we're broken through sin, but initially God made us good, and we are his image. Everything about us by nature is good. I remember uh, a number of years ago during the controversy regarding Terry Schiavo. I don't know if any of you remember that. It's maybe eight or ten years ago at this point. And I don't remember even all the details of that, but she was in a, quote, persistent vegetative state. And there was this big debate that became public about whether or not she should be put to death, frankly. And uh, a very well-known theologian named R.C. Sproul um, wrote an article about that issue. And many Christians were actually arguing at the time that she should be put to death. She's, you know, it would be a favor to her, etc. Her family needs it, whatever. Uh, it's obviously a complex issue, but Sproul, what he wrote has stuck with me. He said, for a Christian, there is no such thing as a vegetative state. No matter how damaged we are psychologically, physically, emotionally, or mentally, we still bear the indelible marks of our creator. There is no such thing as a human vegetable. We are much more valuable in God's eyes. It's inherent to the story. Last thing, God is, God creates, God endows, fourth, God rests. Chapter 2, which in my, probably this isn't a very humble opinion, but I think it should be a part of chapter 1. In Luke's version of the Bible, it's going three more verses. Um, chapter 2, verse 1, the seventh day. And notice that the seventh day breaks the pattern of the first six. There's no, and it was good. There's no, and God made, and then God did. The pattern is broken. And what that means in the Hebrew language is that this is to be seen as sort of the highlight 
the main point, the chorus, so to speak, of the whole story. Day seven is when God rests. And day seven is intentionally highlighted by the author to make this point clear. Now, why does God rest? You know, I ho- it's not because he, like, needs a water break. Coach, take me out. I'm tired. I've been going six days straight. That's a lot of universe. That's not why God rests, okay? God's rest is not his weariness needing to be, you know, taken away. God's rest, rather, here is his entering into his kingly rule. So when you think about God resting on the seventh day, think about a king walking into a newly built throne room down the main aisle and sitting on his throne as the crown is placed upon his head. That is what is happening on day seven. God is reigning over this world that he has made as his temple as the sovereign king. And day seven is also calling you to rest. Maybe the first command of the story of the Bible is the command to rest. Now certainly that means that we are to one out of every seven days rest from our labors. Exodus 20 makes that clear in the Ten Commandments. But I think even more fundamental to this idea of rest is that we are being called here to rest not in ourselves, but in God, the one who has made us. We are being called to trust and rely upon the king rather than ourselves. Listen, are you resting? Are you reliant? And if you're reliant, what are you reliant on? Yourself? Because that will not last. You are not a firm foundation. Or God. The story of God calls you to rest in God's own perfect rest. The story of God calls you to see that he is the king and he is good. He has made all things and he is above all things. Trust him, rely on him, bow before him. Our problem, however, is that we don't do that. That's what the Bible calls sin. Sin is our now natural propensity to seek to rest in anything but God, to seek to trust anyone but God, to seek to rely upon ourselves rather than God. And what Genesis 1 is doing in part is calling people who were created good but have become corrupt through sin to once again rest in the God who made us. Have you trusted and made Jesus the creator of your life? And the great thing about Jesus, the great thing about the God of the Bible is that he calls us to rest because he made us. And then because he knows we don't rest, he moves into the story of our lives and remakes us. You see, God, according to the scriptures, didn't just make you. But he made you, and then when you foiled the plan through sin, he came and remade you through Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you trust that he has done that for you? It's what the story calls you to. It compels you. It demands, frankly, that you lay down all other allegiances and bow before the king of the universe, the one who has always been, the one who made all things, the one who even became one of us so that you one day, free of charge, by grace, can be remade no matter what's happened in your life. That is the God of the Bible, his story, and by his grace, we're all a part.
Let's pray.